Want to make mom's day? Get to your Nordstrom Rack now and score amazing deals for Mother's Day, which is Sunday, May 12th. Find tons of gifts from only $30 at Nordstrom Rack. Fragrance, jewelry, luxury bags, activewear, beauty, and more. Save on Kate Spade, New York, Stuart Weitzman, and Ted Baker, London. Great brands, great prices. So shop your Nordstrom Rack store today and treat mom to the good stuff from just $30. One, two, three, four. Those are numbers. But you already knew that. If you want to know what number you're going to pay each month for your car, use Kelly Blue Book My Wallet on AutoTrader. They're really good at numbers. AutoTrader. I think we're good. Okay. Here we are. Here we are. The 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 last bonus episode, the last last episode. Yeah. Yeah. This is it. So, uh, who are you? I'm Taylor Quimby, host of Patient Zero. You've been listening to me for I don't know, some time now. <laughs> and I'm Sam Evans Brown, uh, and I make a different podcast and have been helping Taylor with Patient Zero. Mhm. And uh, so we solicited questions from you, the audience, lingering Lyme questions, questions about other tick-borne diseases, just whatever the podcast didn't quite answer for you, or maybe sometimes that the podcast like only brushed on. And they poured in. They poured in. And yeah, we got a lot of questions. They dribbled in. <laughs> they came in. They poured and then they dribbled. Well, I've, got a, I've got several pieces of paper here. <laughs> so... Um, so Sam is going to be the surrogate question asker for all of you, since most of these were by email or social media. Uh, and so, Sam, you can do do your business. Should we start with the first one that I believe we actually had someone call in? Yes. Yeah. By uh, George. So we've got a little bit of tape here. Let's play. This is our first question for the Lime AMA. Hi, this is Peter Sands, and I'm calling from Concord, New Hampshire. In listening to the podcast, I've heard some patients call it Lyme's disease, and then most of the patients and physicians will call it Lyme disease. I've always wondered, why is it Lyme disease and not Lyme's disease? So that's that's his question. He's also got a answer, but I was going to give you an opportunity. Did you want to like try and take a stab at this? Well, I was going to we... say this one doesn't. This one feels like it doesn't take a huge amount of. This is like we're starting with a softball here. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Okay. This is what he, this is what his guess is. I am a physician, and I was once told by a rheumatologist in my medical school days that it had to be Lyme disease because towns are not people and they don't possess things. Is that the correct answer? Thanks for your help. That's what I would have said. Is yeah. that is that you know that's just. <laughs> That's <laughs> just how English works. Yeah. I should say, by the way, this guy is a dermatologist, and he works in our same building as our as the radio station that we work in. Oh. So he could be standing one floor beneath us right now, examining <laughs> a rash as we speak. <laughs> um, but no, he's totally right. So if you look at diseases like Parkinson's, Crohn's, Asperger's, uh, Addison's, Hodgkin's lymphoma, these were all named- for, Named after the discoverers. Yeah, people that either first described them or- um, or identified the pathogen or all those sorts of things. Whereas if you, I mean, can you think of any other diseases that are named after places? Hmm. Oh, gosh. Uh, There's actually a lot of them once you start, you know, sort of digging. Yeah, around. exactly. I feel like I should be able to pull it out of a hat, but I can't. West Nile virus. Oh, West Nile virus. Not West Nile's virus. <laughs> uh, the German measles you might have heard of. Not the German's, German's measles. measles. These all sound silly when we... Rocky Mountain spotted fever. Mm-hmm. Cool. Okay, so I've got, um, as you said, several pieces of papers here. Yep, yep, yep. Uh, 
So we had we got a number of these uh, about about uh, immunity. Yes. Um, so so let's just start with this. Does everyone who's exposed to Lyme disease actually get sick or have severe symptoms? Right. So we talked about this in the podcast, but let's dig in a little bit deeper. Um, I actually called back somebody that people might remember, Dr. Mark Klempner. He's executive vice chancellor at Mass Biologics at UMass Medical School. Exposure to the bacteria uh, can have a very wide spectrum of response to it. Um, And that seems to be uh, quite related uh, to your genetic uh, background and your age. So what he's saying here is that, no, not everybody gets severe symptoms. This is what we were talking about with the bell curve, is that there's this huge sort of array of how people get sick. Now, there was this whole section that we had in a draft earlier where I talked about cytokines. Sam, do you remember me bringing up this word and then you slashing it out of the draft? Yeah, so cytokines are are the the sort of first wave of response of antibodies, the the nonspecific antibodies that your body sends in first. Not quite. Swing and a miss. So they're they're related to your your immune system, but they're these weird little things. It's like a hormone, but not a hormone. Right. They're these chemical messengers that sort of kick things off. There's all sorts of different kinds, um, including... Uh, cytokines that produce an inflammatory response, cytokines that tamp down on inflammatory responses, a whole bunch of cytokines that we don't really know what they do. Their interactions are so complex that, you know, every time we would get into this, it was like when you get to the subatomic level of uh, like molecular biology or something, you're talking about quarks. And, you know, this is the area that like most of us just start to glaze over because Mm -hmm. it's just too complicated. And frankly, we don't totally understand everything there. But it's sort of fundamental to how things work. Yeah. But I can say that there is this one type of cytokine that's associated with more extreme fatigue and that some people have a genetic predisposition to producing more of this in response to a Lyme infection. And that those people are more likely to be profoundly fatigued or have more of these sort of basic flu symptoms. Hmm. Now, this is not associated with like Lyme getting in your heart or in your brain. But we're talking about like the difference between you get Lyme and you just get a rash and don't really feel sick at all. And maybe I get like pretty sick and I feel super under the weather and I'm like, can't get out of bed. It's sort of like the nuts and bolts and cogs and wheels of your immune system. And those are, you know... A, genetic, but B, a result of your sort of life history. Yeah, exactly. So, so then another, another question from another listener. If someone doesn't develop severe symptoms but does have Lyme, are they better off going on antibiotics or not? So if you get some symptoms, um, but not severe ones, so say you just get the rash or you, you know, get some like flu-like symptoms after a tick bite and then you get a positive test down the road, you should definitely get treated because you don't know if those symptoms are going to get worse and turn into these more problematic complications that can happen when Lyme goes untreated. That would be a very bad idea to have Lyme symptoms, have a known bite especially, and not get treated. Right. Um, however, if say you were bit by a tick a couple of years ago. You never had any symptoms, but you've been listening to this podcast and basically getting super freaked out. (laughs) And you get the test. You go get serology. And you're like, holy crap, Um, you know, test or no, you're like, geez, you know, maybe I should just take a round of antibiotics just to be sure. That, I would say, um, is not a good idea. 
a lot of people get exposed but don't get sick. And throwing antibiotics at a complete lack of symptoms is not generally advisable unless you had like a clear um, case of like latent tuberculosis, for example, which um, is a completely other story and like something that should not be considered analogous. So, okay, so then is it possible for someone's own immune system to combat the disease successfully? Okay, so this is pretty complicated. Um, now, I don't. did you know that some people can't get HIV? I did not know that. Yeah, okay, so they don't have what are called this, this specific type of surface receptor. Um, and this is the big story in, in China. Did you hear how about like there was a test case where they used CRISPR on human humans to, right. to, basic, to basically prevent them from ever getting HIV. Yes. What they were doing was giving them this genetic... Uh, predisposition to not having these surface receptors so they cannot get HIV. I vaguely remember that. Yes. Um, Now, we won't open that can of worms, but we will say that uh, this is not the case with Lyme. So you can get it, treat it. You can get it again, treat it. You can get it again, treat it. There's no sense that you grow, you like build immunity over time. That's because there are multiple strains of the bacteria. I think that's only half of that. And it starts to get into a complicated area that like is pretty hands-off right now. (laughs) But also, um, there is no clear sense that anybody has some sort of genetic predisposition because of how their body is was you know made and and some something was passed down that prevents them from getting Lyme in the same way that some people will not get HIV. Right. Um, So, you know, one of the reasons that we know people can get the infection but don't get sick is because they'll do these huge uh, serological surveys in, say, an endemic area like New Hampshire or Massachusetts, where there's a lot of Lyme, they'll, you know, basically test a ton of ton of people, and then they'll ask all the people who have a positive exposure result, you know, do you ever remember getting sick? And lots of them will have no inclination that they were ever exposed to Lyme disease at all. Hmm. And and what that tells you is that like lots of people get bit, lots of people get exposed, but some of them get literally no symptoms and stuff. And what's weird about this is that you or I might say, wow, their immune system fought it off. But uh, Dr. Mark Klempner is much more, well, he, he's reserved because he doesn't really understand what happened there, and he does not think it's clear that the immune system has fought it off at all. They were exposed. They controlled it. As the you know, I'm not sure that that's quite the right terminology. They resolved the infection with no treatment, um, and um, and. We don't know any particular differences of their immune system per se. So so basically, this is one of these areas where I thought that it was like, oh, so some people have a more robust immune system. It just works. And he was kind of like, no, nope. we really don't know what happened. Yes. I, I mean, I, th- I think this is one of those areas where you just have to be like, oh, yeah, OK, there's a lot we don't know. Yeah. All right. Next question. Uh, so, okay, next one is from a nurse in Arkansas. Yeah. A nurse in Arkansas who was treated twice for other forms of tick, tick-borne illness and says, both times I was informed that Lyme disease does not happen in Arkansas. Both times I was very confused about how ticks knew where the state lines are. Do they just stop when they get to Arkansas? And the answer is yes. <laughs> they see the sign at the border. There's a there's like one of those invisible electric fences, like for dogs <laughs> in the yard. Uh, no, so so this um this is going to lean a lot on some of the ecosystem stuff that we talked about in the seventh episode. Mm-hmm. So black legged ticks, deer ticks, uh, their range actually goes quite far south. Um, but a lot of the factors around this ecosystem do change as you move south. 
So one, uh, it's drier and less humid. So they desiccate and die. Exactly. They dry out really easily and can die. And so because of that, they stay really in the leaf litter where there's like some moisture and where basically they can survive. So less risk of exposure. Less risk of exposure. Um, It also changes the host behavior. So they're more likely to feed on a variety of lizards Hmm. um, than larger animals that require them sort of like, you know, walking up a blade of grass or walking up a, um, you know, a a plant to then get on a deer and that sort of thing. so they feed on different hosts. Um, that changes the infection rates. Uh, it means that they're less likely literally to bite people because we're less likely to brush up against them at, say, like leg height or waist height. And so, well, and, and, and isn't it the case, uh, sorry if you were going to get to this, no. but isn't it the case that, that lizards, if a tick bites a lizard, not only is the lizard not going to give lime to that tick, uh, but also, if the tick already has Lyme, uh, it might get sort of wiped out by having bit the lizard. Okay, so <laughs> you just entered another twilight zone, um, <laughs> one thing at a time. The lizards are not good. Uh, they're not competent reservoirs like the mice are. So the more ticks that are biting lizards instead of mice, the lower the infection rate in the area. Mm-hmm. So there, there is Lyme disease in some of the animals in Arkansas, and there are cases of Lyme there, very, very few. Chances are most of most of those people who got Lyme disease and were diagnosed in Arkansas might have gotten it from somewhere else. That's not to say that nobody from Arkansas has ever gotten Lyme disease in Arkansas. Clearly. But this trifecta thing is different. The equation is different, and it is way less likely that you, A, get bit, that and that, B, that tick has Lyme disease in Arkansas. And so that's you know sort of why it is a low Low incident state. Right. It's a very low incident state. Now, what you're saying is that there is a type of lizard called the western fence lizard that does not live in Arkansas but lives on the west coast. California. And it's got this magical blood that when an infected tick feeds from this lizard, it will actually clear the Borrelia infection in the tick. So it's not all lizards. Correct. Now, you would think that that is why the California rates... Um, are also so low. It's like, hey, all these ticks are biting these magical, curative western fence lizards. That is not the case. There was one study that looked at if you took out all these lizards, they were thinking the infection rate would go up, right? Because all these lizards are like curing the disease. Mm-hmm. But in fact, they took out the lizards and the infection rates went down. And that's because the lizards are a prime, a prime host. Hmm. And so their very existence helps to propagate tick populations. And without them, the tick populations crash. The reason is there's no white-footed mice in California right. or on the West Coast. Right. Um, and so, again, you start to see the importance of the mouse as a reservoir for Lyme disease. But also as a, as a thing that sort of increases the numbers of ticks. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Okay. Uh, this is about the vaccine. Okay. So... In theory, if I could find a veterinarian to administer the canine Lyme vaccine to me, would it prevent Lyme? Are there any reasons to think that it would not be safe for a human? And what's interesting about this is that we know that it's the same surface protein, right? It's the same OSP-A, outer surface protein A, that that make both vaccines for dogs and people work, right? Yeah, yes and no. <laughs> yes and no. So first of all, I'd say we've discussed this question more than most uh, yeah. that have come in. Because it's funny. I have reached out to several veterinarians, and none of them have been able to talk to me. And I suspect that some of them didn't want to because this is a... They get asked this question too often? I think this is the sort of question in which, from a professional perspective, the only answer is... 
that's a bad idea. <laughs> yes, there could be dangers, and we don't know what they are, and you shouldn't do it. This is a bad idea. So let me start off by saying that. Yeah. Um, so there are four different versions of dog Lyme vaccines on the market. All four of them use the outer surface protein OSP-A, uh, which is the same in the human vaccine, Limerix. Three of them also use another outer surface protein from the bacteria OSP-C. Hmm. So I'd say right off the bat, that's never been tested on humans. Yeah, those three, those three, like you would be, you know, a total guinea pig for whether or not this could have some adverse effects. Right. So right off the bat, like that's probably a bad idea. And second of all, um, the dosages for animal vaccines are different. So, so for example, dogs get um, one shot and then another booster instead of the three that went with Limerix. And in fact, because of that, I think the dog efficacy rates are lower than the human efficacy rate if you've got all three boosters. Hmm. There's also other ingredients in vaccines. I don't know what goes into animal vaccines that, that just haven't been tested on humans. The, Lyme, the Limerix vaccine was not approved for kids, not because it was proven to be bad, but because it hadn't been studied. And if something hasn't been studied, you cannot say whether or not it's safe or not. There's just like, this is complex stuff, and you've got to go through a pretty rigorous series of determinations before you decide that something is safe. So don't, don't take dog vaccines. I'd just like to point out that our regime of chemical safety governance basically is this, in which we don't test, but then put it out on the market anyway. But that's a tangent. Yeah. Yeah, but yeah, anyway, yeah. The, so <laughs> I think what this really tells us is how desperate people are. Yeah. That's a sad thought. Yeah. Uh, okay, next question. I've heard from several people over the years that there are variations on the Western blot, ELISA, et cetera. Those are uh, the, the tests right. in different regions of the United States. So that though I live in northern New Hampshire, if I frequent Massachusetts and may have gotten my tick bite there, that being tested there would be more accurate. And I think the question is, is that true? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Implied question mark here. Okay, so uh, to answer this because I did have some questions. I got back in touch with Ellie Thiel. She was the director of the serology lab at Mayo Clinic. Um, and so the tests are not different by region, um, although you can send it to one of those alternative labs that we talked about in episode four um, that use different criteria. But, mm -hmm. but generally, it's not as though there are different tests place to place. Uh, most testing goes either to kind of regional laboratories or commercial reference laboratories. And testing that's performed at those labs are is essentially identical. Now, some hospitals in super endemic regions like New England, um, turns out that they might actually do the first step in the testing. It's a two-tiered system. The first one is called the ELISA. And they might actually be able to do that in-house because hmm. it's pretty simple. Right. And because, and because they are asked for this so frequently, they've developed their own in-house expertise. Right. Um, but if it's positive, then they need to the second test in the two-tier test called the Western blot. And that is much more complicated and requires more expertise to interpret. And so because of that, like, you know, your local hospital is not going to be doing Western blot, and they're going to probably send it to one of these big commercial labs. There are literally just a handful that are doing just gads and gads of testing, not just for Lyme, but for all sorts of diseases across the entire country. So basic answer uh, for this woman, tests between Massachusetts and New Hampshire are probably exactly the same, unless she's having them sent to one of these specialty labs, in which yeah. case... Uh, we can't really say much about the accuracy. So that's kind of it. I mean, chances are... Um, from New Hampshire to Mass, it's in fact potentially going to the exact same laboratory. 
Okay, so a myth, as they say. Busted. (laughs) Spectrum One is a big deal. You get Spectrum Internet with the most reliable internet speeds, free advanced Wi-Fi for enhanced security and privacy, and a free Spectrum Mobile Unlimited line with nationwide 5G included, all while saving big. For the big speed, big reliability, and big savings you want, get Spectrum One. Just $49.99 a month for 12 months. Visit spectrum.com slash big deal for full details. Offer subject to change. Valid for qualified residential customers only. Service not available in all areas. Restrictions apply. Start clean with Clorox because Clorox delivers a powerful clean every time. Because messes happen. Because... Oh, the charcoal mess. Great, because why would I put that on my face when I could drop it in my sink? This is what I get for multitasking. Ugh, why is charcoal so sticky? <clears throat> Hello? Hey, Janice. I am so sorry. I thought I was on mute. <laughs> no, we don't need to reschedule. I'll just stay off camera. Ooh, yeah, that happens. So start clean with Clorox. Use Clorox products as directed. One, two, three, four. Those are numbers, but you already knew that. If you want to know what number you're going to pay each month for your car, use Kelly Blue Book My Wallet on AutoTrader. They're really good at numbers. AutoTrader. Okay, this this next question starts out, your podcast is very interesting. Yay. Thank you. Uh, I was wondering if there have been any birth defects with women that have Lyme disease. Ooh. We talked about this a lot. Yeah. And this is, I mean, like we thought about putting this into the podcast in various places, but this is just like uh, so much here and it's and it's hard to get into. But let's get nerdy. Mm-hmm. Um, OK, so in the 80s, you know, this is early days in Lyme history. There were case reports of two women who had Lyme disease during their first trimester of pregnancy. Both of their babies died shortly after birth. And afterwards, they were able to see something that may or may not have been spirochetes during autopsy. But remember, this was before the tests had been developed. They they were not 100% sure this was Lyme disease. There were Lyme-like spirochetes. Mm-hmm. So this was a big question mark, let's say. But obviously one that warranted more study because it's pretty scary. Mm-hmm. So not long after, there's another study, this one of 19 women, all of whom got Lyme during pregnancy, most of whom were treated with antibiotics during that pregnancy. Now, five of them had, quote-unquote, adverse outcomes, but they were kind of all over the place. So, um, and I, I don't know if this is like sensitive, but it's weird. One had conjoined fingers or toes. I, don't, I can't tell from reading the literature. Uh, webbed digits, that kind of thing. One was either partially or completely blind. Again, I can't tell from the way it's written. Uh, one of the babies was just premature. One had a rash as a newborn, but that was it. And another died in the uterus. Mm-hmm. So, again, you're looking at this different stuff, but it, it kind of reminds me when we talked about a, a case definition. And and these kind of actually case definitions, this idea that you've got to like figure out what's happening on a narrow level, that would be the same case here. So again, they were able to say like, okay, these pregnant women had Lyme disease, these babies had problems, but we can't figure out what the hell's going on. And we don't know if it's connected or not. Right. So more study required. Right. right? And so the question is, the question in that would become A, uh, are th- like these abnormalities above the background rate? Right. Uh, B. 
if they are, is the causation the Lyme disease or something else entirely? Exactly. Such as, for example, the treatment to the Lyme disease. Right. It might, I mean, I don't know. What Do, you, do we know what type of uh, antibiotics they were given? You know, I don't. I mean, that was a while ago, and it was before doxycycline was the standard. Right. Um, and at this point, they've determined that doxycycline is safe for pregnant women and their babies. And it's one of the reasons that if you get Lyme disease while you're pregnant, they'll like put you on doxy right off the bat. Right. But again, this was early days. They did not have the answers. All they knew was like, we need to keep looking at this right. and keep studying. And by the way, Alan Steer was one of the authors of that mm-hmm. investigation. Um, okay, so since then, though, uh, a handful of studies now expanding even bigger, looking at hundreds of mothers and eventually thousands have not been able to find any link between Lyme during pregnancy and these types of quote-unquote adverse outcomes. So each time... To your point, the number of Lyme pregnancies where something goes wrong is the same for the number of healthy non-Lyme pregnancies where something also goes wrong. Right. So, so in other words, there have been some studies, some case studies, some small N studies that have shown that perhaps there's something that we should be concerned about when it comes to pregnant women having Lyme. Mm-hmm. Um, there have been some studies that suggest that that perhaps there's nothing here and we shouldn't be worried about it. Uh, and so, as is often the case in science and epidemiology, the answer is uh, further study is warranted. Yeah. And I, I think in this case, what's pretty clear is that there is a hypothetical mechanism by which uh, Lyme could be passed to a baby or pass to a placenta to create problems during pregnancy. And so what you do see is a lot of doctors say, like, we don't have all the details, but we do know um, treatment is effective during pregnancy at preventing these problems if they exist for you and your baby and everything. So that's what you should do. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that one of the most interesting points here is, again, another epidemiological study and the sort of thing that, frankly, I would have loved to have gotten into with the podcast. But Remember that something something around 95% of all Lyme cases that are confirmed come from 14 highly endemic states. Mm-hmm. If um, there were a clear connection between birth defects of any specific kind or nature and Lyme disease, you would very likely to be able to see that those 14 states had a significantly higher rate of some specific issues related to pregnancy from the rest of the country. Right. And you would be able to start looking for those sorts of big, big epidemiological patterns. And they can't see them. And so even if it's possible that there are like these occasional cases that happen, it's pretty clear that it's not a big enough trend that it's almost impossible to study. Right. Any other questions before we move on from this weighty topic? I think that's what I got. I think we're good. Okay. Okay. So so now we've got some questions about treatment. Yes, we do. What are the treatment protocols for late diagnosis Lyme? Standard doxy? Question mark. Uh, so, for most cases, doctors still recommend that this is the IDSA that put out the big guidelines. They still do 14 days of doxycycline for most cases of Lyme disease, and they're actually in their new recommendations potting that down to potting that down. I'm using a radio term, putting that down to 10 days. Hmm. Um, However, there are certain cases where they change the type of antibiotic and they'll occasionally move to IV antibiotics. And the reason that they would do those things is because if, for example, you get Lyme in your brain or some other places, the question is, can the antibiotic get to where it needs to go? 
Right. And so this is, for example, where we talk about, well, can a drug penetrate the blood-brain barrier? Yes. These are parts of your body that are specifically designed as sort of like a vault. You know, you want to keep your brain safe. There are other uh, parts of the body, your spinal cord, where, again, we're trying to, like, keep stuff out. And because of that, um, finding specific drugs that can get in there is a little more complicated. So that's why there are, for neurologic Lyme symptoms where people have, you know, had issues for a long time, you will sometimes get that 28-day Cetrifactric. I can't say. I can't say antibiotic names. They're so (laughs) annoying. I don't know how to say it either. I can't help you here. Ceftri. Okay, this is why we have the internet. Ceftriaxone. There we go. Ceftriaxone. Okay. Next question. Okay. Unless you have more to say about that one. Do I? Let's look at these here notes. Nope. Okay. What are the efficacies of herbal treatments across? any stage of diagnosis, early to late. Mm. Okay, so we talked a little bit about herbals with Dr. Wine uh, during the episode on the laser because in addition to all the stuff he did, he like gave people just a, a walloping package of like 30 uh, herbal supplements, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so to answer this question about efficacy, I ended up reaching out to a guy during my research phase. I never used him in the podcast, but this is a perfect time to do it. His name is Ying Zhang. He's a professor and researcher at Johns Hopkins. Uh, He spent a good deal of his life studying tuberculosis, but he has switched to Lyme disease, more Hmm. or less. Um, So some years back, he's at this Lyme conference in Europe, and this is, uh, I think, run by a chronic Lyme organization. I don't know if it was ILADS, but I'm pretty sure that it was one of these sort of alternative conferences. But he and he, he meets a practitioner there who says that she's been giving her patients oregano. Um, oregano. Yeah, but not just like oregano that you would get from the store. They're using essential oils. So a concentrated liquid, it contains whatever active compounds are in the herb or whatever. Um, but they're using these in conjunction with other drugs, yeah. I should add. Um, and that supposedly this mixture has been working really well. And uh, at first we didn't quite believe this, of course, but then we found that some essential oils have amazing activity against Borrelia burgdorferi, uh, including oregano oil, cinnamon bark, as well as clove bud. So, so he, you know, after this conference, he goes home, he does this study. Basically, he grows a bunch of Borrelia burgdorferi, and then he adds essential oils into all these little Petri dishes, and he finds that, like, garlic and allspice and myrrh and all these like tons of essential oils have these different properties where they help to kill the the spirochete right so this is this is interesting to me because uh our baby son was bit by a tick yes and it was on him for a very short amount of time but but it was at a family cookout where my aunt was there and my aunt uh immediately said i have some essential oils in my car Mm mm-hmm so she almost definitely read some of the coverage of his study when it came out because, you know, once he wrote this thing up and it went out, like a lot of the media coverage was like essential oils kill Lyme disease. Hmm. Now, this is such a leap. I mean, I understand how you look at the study, you look at the conclusions, and then as a journalist, science journalist, you might write this up a certain way. But here's the problem. In a Petri dish, these essential oils have antimicrobial properties, mm-hmm. but they have not yet been tested in animals. And then they have to be tested in humans. And then you have to find out through a series of trials whether or not they do any of the stuff we just talked about, like 
Does it penetrate the blood-brain barrier? All those things really matter to know if this is going to work. And many, many things that show promise do not make it through this series of tests. The evaluation of the efficacy of the essential oil um, would take time. And, and, and I should add this, too, because, again, I've, I've heard people point to this as a reason to, like, jump on the, the wagon and literally go out and buy these essential oils and start taking them. But everything, everything has side effects. Also, even though essential oils are natural products, right, derived from plants, it doesn't mean that it doesn't have toxicity. It still has toxicity. Right. It can cause burning and some other potential side effects. So it has to really do it in an appropriate way at the right dose. And dosage, by the way, is another series of tests to figure out, you know, when you do a drug, what's the right amount? And so... I mean, I think to answer the question is we don't know the efficacy. There are some essential oils and herbal treatments that have shown some promise, but like the the research is in early days. And in the meantime, anybody who's sort of choosing to to sort of jump on this at this point is making a gamble, and they should do it cautiously and and monitor themselves for side effects. Yeah, yeah. The study of one. I mean, I, I do think that like eating a a lot of garlic is. A lot, a lot safer than certain other things. So, sure. you know, I'm, I love, I love garlic. Yeah, has yeah. <laughs> I'm not, I'm not making fun. Of, I'm just saying. I know like, I, I was gonna make fun of you for eating a lot of garlic, <laughs> but I'm gonna, I'm just gonna hold off okay, in case, right. in case there are a lot of garlic eaters out there and who, who might be offended. What's funny to me about this is that there were um, a lot of people who wrote to us who were sort of like, you have to interview this researcher. Yeah. Um, Dr. Zhang, and 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 yet he is so much more cautious with his findings than than the people who are who are writing to us. Well, I think I think he's in a tough space because he's also been criticized by other scientists for saying, "Hey, listen, people take your work and they run away with it and they jump way ahead of the test." You know, they're they're jumping ahead and starting to take this stuff. Um, I think that's a problem largely that's on the media Mm -hmm. and in some ways on scientific infrastructure. The way that we write abstracts, for example, Mm -hmm. are they're designed to be a little um, sensational. They're trying to like put their biggest, coolest results up at the top so that they can get published. So there's there's a number of institutional problems that I think lead to this. And he very rightly was like, hey, for us, it's not very important uh, which camp, which side we stand on. For us, it's more important to try to solve the problem. It's hard, I think, to study this stuff because you get put in the middle. Right. Okay, last question. Yeah. You did not touch upon co-infections, which are considered to prevail in all Lyme diagnosis. Is this true, and does treatment then differ from doxy? It is true that we did not talk, talk well, at least not much, about co-infections. No, and I, I, I honestly, I'd plan to, but, but the series, is, it was just so much to get through. Yeah. Co-infections are not always a part of a Lyme diagnosis. I'll put that off the bat. Um, so, but, but there are these other tick-borne diseases uh, that are also carried by black-legged deer ticks, and it is possible to get more than one at once, and um, that sounds particularly awful for a lot of reasons. doesn't mean that everybody who gets Lyme disease also gets these other things. Because um, so. Lyme is the most... Like, if you, if you take a tick randomly... Yep. Uh, Lyme is the most prevalent disease to find in a tick. Right. Uh, and then and then the other diseases, such as, you know, babesiosis, anaplasmosis, yeah. 
all are less prevalent than Lyme. And that's, so, so that's why you hear about Lyme more than any of these other diseases. Correct. Um, and so you just mentioned a couple. Uh, there's anaplasmosis. Uh, that actually has the same treatment, which is doxycycline. So if you were to happen to get anaplasmosis and Lyme disease at the same time, you would just take the doxycycline that was prescribed to you, and hopefully it would kick them both. Um, Babesia, which is a a disease that's sort of malaria-like, is how a lot of researchers will describe it. It's very serious illness, um, in some ways more so than Lyme. Uh, That actually uses a different type of antibiotic. So if you were to get both of those and only take doxycycline because the diagnosis got mixed together and the doctor only sort of thought it was Lyme disease, it is true that you could potentially have persisting symptoms after the doxycycline. And if you were continuing to try and go for the Lyme, it could be that you needed to actually get treated for Babesia. Mm-hmm. It's complicated stuff. And you can see that there's even more room to screw this up when you start adding these other tick-borne illnesses in. Um, there's another one uh, that was recently discovered called Borrelia miyamotoi. Mm-hmm. It's discovered in Japan. It is not classified as Lyme disease. Even though it's a type of Borrelia, it causes similar issues, but not so much the bullseye rash. Doxy seems to work just as well. But like... In some of the cases where you have people who are told they don't have Lyme or their Lyme tests are funky, um, it's very possible that, that they had this other form of tick-borne illness, and then that is another wrench that's just thrown into the works and makes it that much harder to figure out what's going on. Yeah. Um, but t- I guess to, to kind of pull back on the freak outiness again, this is going to be different wherever you are. It's place by place by place, but there's this... Um, company that's collecting ticks and testing them here in New Hampshire lately. And so I just looked at some of their data and it, and it tells you a little bit about like, you know, the level of freaked out you might ought to be. They looked at 85 ticks in a county in southeastern New Hampshire. 25% of the ticks had Lyme disease. Four of them had anaplasma. Eight had Babesia. And just one had the Miyamotoi. Mm-hmm. And so I, I I don't know. I think you definitely should know, like, not all of them have co-infections. Like, right. you are not guaranteed to get all these different um, tick-borne diseases. The testing is messy. If you test positive for Lyme, it also starts to cross over into these other ones where the testing... This is what I was going to ask, right? That, that like So there is cross-reactivity in the serology between Lyme and some of these other diseases? Correct. Yes. Right. Um and so, again, it's, it's just like, like everything in Lyme, it's both like you should be freaked out, but you should also hold back. This one dude that you guys might remember from the second episode, and he was in another part, Jorge Benach. And I am a distinguished professor of microbiology at Stony Brook University. So he's this guy who was sort of involved in studying um, Babesia in the 70s and was working with... Bergdorfer and team when they uh, isolated the pathogen. So he has been doing sort of a survey of all these different pathogens that are in some of the ticks around Long Island and in New York. And he is talking about how there might need to be a new designation that's sort of like a polymicrobial tick disease. Mm -hmm. I need to make that case and I need to make, you know what they say, I mean, uh, big claims require big proof. Right. Right, right, right. Uh, and I'm not there yet. Part of the reason is when you get multi, if you do get several of these at once or just even two, it's not clear how that affects your body's ability to fight them off or the efficacy of the drugs. Like that stuff is hard to test and is not well understood. But even though he said that, he's also super skeptical when people 
walk up to them and I'm like, and list off the six things that they have mm-hmm. and how they have all these different things and everybody in their family has these different things. You know, he, he was kind of like... It's, hard, it's so hard to even know if you have one of them. Yeah. I can give you an example. Sure. There was this woman who participates as a community advocate. And at one point, conversing with her, she told me that she had had Lyme. Okay, well, that's fine. I, I believe that. You can have Lyme. And then she told me, well, I also have babesiosis. And I looked at her, and she was not quite 40. And I said, hmm, do you have babesiosis? And she said, oh, yeah, I had antibodies to babesiosis. I said, well, it's not the same thing. And then she also went to tell me that she also had antibodies, that she also had anaplasmosis. I had them all. When, in fact, she only probably had one, right? And antibodies to the other two. So so one of the questions that, that we got, or actually sort of one of the assertions that was made by a listener halfway through uh, the, the series that I found really interesting, and I wonder if you have uh, sort of come to a conclusion as to what you think about it, is that uh, when it comes to folks who are experiencing symptoms that, that last past the treatment, mm-hmm. uh, the recommended treatment for Lyme disease, so, so if people who were in this sort of, quote-unquote, post-treatment Lyme disease syndrome bucket, yeah. uh, that many of them are like, likely had a co-infection that wasn't properly treated and that that is what is leading to, to the, the uh, continue, continuation of symptoms. Do you think that that's a likely explanation? I think it's a, an absolute likely explanation for some of the people in that bucket. And knowing how many in that bucket fall into that c- category versus potentially fall into these other categories is really, really difficult to tease apart until we can identify on a molecular level, you know, who has had Lyme, who still has Lyme. Who, you know, there's there's a lot more that we have to know before we can start separating these problems out. I think there's... Um, people that have a co-infection and now they're not actually treating Lyme, but they're trying to treat something else potentially. I think there's people who are having an autoimmune reaction. So there's this big paper that people are talking about now is like they think they figured out chronic Lyme arthritis and it's related to basically this like bacterial detritus that sort of floats around and continues to cause a bunch of problems. Right, so there's like DNA left over from from the bacteria and your body's responding to that. Yep, and there's really good work that's come out that's pointing in that direction. I have seen people be overly confident that that explains everybody in the bucket hmm. when really you look at that study, they are talking about arthritis. Right. So again, the fatigue, the brain fog, that kind of stuff, like they haven't made that connection yet. If it's there, there's a lot work more work to be done. There's the persistent infection theory, and there's interesting stuff there where it's like you can you can neither rule it out nor should you say it's a sure thing and that like everybody in the bucket has that. But like maybe some maybe a small percentage of people have this thing that will eventually be like that's exactly what chronic Lyme was. Right. So it's like it's like the theory here is it's kind of like tuberculosis where you have these quote unquote persister cells yep. and and maybe you're just your immune system is responding to that in like a low key long lasting way. Yeah. Without a doubt, there's also people that are straight up misdiagnosed and have other issues, you know, who have um, MS Yeah. or maybe even like sarcoidosis. Right. You know, some of these other things that are the quote unquote great, great imitators, but have been diagnosed with Lyme and they, they're still going, they're still in the diagnosis hell. And down the road, they're going to figure out it wasn't Lyme. It was something completely different. There are actual cases where that's happened. And the, the CDC is like very keen on showing them because it, it's concerned about you know, misdiagnosis of 
other conditions as Lyme disease. So mm-hmm. it always like makes a big big deal when they they find a case where where that's true. But you know you've had people. Um, who thought they had Lyme disease and were treating with antibiotics, and it turned out they had cancer. Yeah. And so, you know, that's definitely going to be some of the people in the bucket, too. And then, you know, and this is maybe the hardest thing to say, because you risk everybody in that bucket thinking that you're talking about them, and you're not. But, like, there are people that do have hypochondria. And, like, some some people with hypochondria might have fallen into Lyme world, too, because it's a place where you can fall. There's so much confusion and ambiguity. It's a place there too. So like, you know, if you look to everybody who thinks that they have chronic Lyme or has been diagnosed with chronic Lyme, a very small percentage or maybe a slightly larger percentage of those people really do have some somatic issues or struggling with depression or these other things. Or maybe they're struggling with depression because of something else. Like it's just a big old bucket with a lot of stuff going on in there and it's impossible to tease out at this point. Yeah. All right. Those are all our questions. Yeah. Thanks, everybody, for sending in your thoughts and your questions. And I hope that we have answered them to the best of our ability. And I hope um, that I'm not wrong about everything and that I've injected enough humilities and we don't know to cover the fact that, like, chances are a lot of this stuff will change. Yeah. Yeah. Good luck, everyone. Bye. This episode was produced by me, Taylor Quimby. Sam Evans-Brown is Patient Zero's senior producer. Erica Janik is executive producer. Graphics by Sarah Plord. Maureen McMurray is director of content. Patient Zero's theme was composed and performed by Ty Gibbons. Patient Zero is a production of New Hampshire Public Radio. Start clean with Clorox because Clorox delivers a powerful clean every time. Because messes happen. Because the charcoal mess. Great, because why would I put that on my face when I could drop it in my sink? This is what I get for multitasking. Ugh, why is charcoal so sticky? Uh Hello? Hey, Janice. I am so sorry. I thought I was on mute. (laughs) No, we don't need to reschedule. I'll just stay off camera. Ooh, yeah, that happens. So start clean with Clorox. Use Clorox products as directed. Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home.